Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Taking Control of Your Diabetes podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Jeremy Pettis, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Steve Edelman. So if you're just now tuning into our podcast, both Steve and I are living with type 1 diabetes, and we are also adult endocrinologists doing research and patient care at the University of California, San Diego. Um, and today's topic is an interesting one. We're really going to bring you some highlights of one of kind of the premier conferences in the diabetes world called the American Diabetes Association Conference that just occurred at the end of June. But before we dive into that topic, if you are actually listening to this podcast before August 18th, um, please make sure that you at least know about our one conference, which is the weekend of August 18th here in San Diego. And what that is, is it's an amazing weekend, especially for people with type 1 diabetes and their friends and families to come. It's a whole weekend where we have lectures, but in the morning there's fun runs and yoga, and at night there's hanging out at the bar, but it's up to like 700 type 1s I think that we have. So gosh, it's just so cool to be in the majority and take over a whole resort. And yeah, Steve's making a little air guitar here. We got a couple new songs that we'll be releasing also. Steve, what do you want to say about that? I was that? just going to say, you, you said it all, uh, but even our speakers are mostly adult endocrinologists who have type 1 themselves. Mm -hmm. And so many of our other faculty, nurse practitioners, you know, physical trainers, everything. So it's a, I, I can I, I'm speechless because I've been putting on conferences for 25 years. I'm always blown away yep. by one. Well, we hope to see you there. So to dive back into today's topic, you know, again, so this is this, I'm going to call it the ADA, American Diabetes Association uh, Conference. It happens every year. Um, and it rotates around the country as to where it occurs. And this one just so happened to be here in San Diego. Yeah, and just it's important to know that this these are the scientific sessions. And it's pretty high-level talk. And everyone that attended the forum that we're going to emulate some of the hot topics are all healthcare professionals, scientists, work for industry. And you and I, Jeremy and I, are going to help bring it down to earth to right. us sophisticated lay folks. So we thought, you know, what a cool way to kind of bring people into this. And we, hey, we know that you listening are very, very smart and know a lot about diabetes. Um, but this is a conference just so you get the feel of you know, about 30,000 people from all over the world. Latest and greatest kind of everything hot in diabetes is released at this thing. It's kind of like a fun, you know, camp for us adult, you know, endocrinologists. <laughs> and then every year at the conference, TCOID co puts on this event with Diatribe called, we call the forum where we invite five experts to come and talk about kind of the latest and greatest in diabetes. And it's a fun night. We start with an hour of kind of cocktails and hors d'oeuvres, and then we jump into just talking about diabetes for an hour and a half. So what we're going to do, Steve and I with you right now, is we're going to kind of bring you the highlights of the highlights. So going through the forum, it was hosted, you know, Steve was one of the moderators. Um, so going through some of the questions we asked people, we're going to play some of their clips, but then we'll just kind of break it down to what they're actually talking about. Yeah, and I'll just say uh, a special kudos to Kelly Close and the Diatribe folks who uh, worked in partnership with all of us at TCOE to put on this event. And this was the 17th year. The money that was raised at this event goes to support the mission of both the Diatribe 
and uh, TCOID. Mm -hmm. So just so you can feel the scene, you know, it's about five people up on a stage in a panel, and there's several hundred people in the audience, like, attending, just glued to their seats to hear <laughs> kind of what we're talking about. So let's jump into it. Um, these aren't really in a particular order, but one of the first topics that uh, was a big topic at the ADA is everything that's going on with these new GLP-1 drugs. And these are the drugs you've heard about, of course, on the news and on the podcast, like Ozempic, where everybody's losing a ton of weight, Wegovy, and then the one that we talk a lot about here well, as well at TC is called Manjaro. Uh, got you got to say it like that. And what's new with Manjaro is that it's, you know, had all this impressive, so by the way, it's a once a week injection, technically a GLP-1, GIP drug, two kind of drugs in it. It's been approved for the use of diabetes. People's blood sugars come down like, you know, like gangbusters, but now they're studying it specifically in obesity. So we asked one of our good friends and colleagues, Dr. Juan Frias, who actually Steve trained a number of years ago, what was cool about this drug and what he's going to talk about is this, these surmount studies. So that was the name of the studies where they actually tested terzepatide or Manjaro, and we'll hear what he said and then we'll kind of break it down for you. Surmount 2 is a study looking at terzepatide specifically for overweight and obesity. So um, it was in patients with type 2 diabetes, and we had done the SURPASS trials, which were diabetes trials with secondary endpoints of weight loss. And in those studies, there was a dose dependent reduction in body weight, and actually got probably the highest or did get the highest body weight reduction that we'd seen in diabetes to that point, somewhere in the between 12 and 14% weight reduction at either 40 or 52 weeks. But for the surmount program and for regulatory approval, specifically for overweight and obesity, there has to be a pivotal trial in patients with type 2 diabetes. And it has to have at least 52 weeks after the dose has been escalated to the maximal dose. So this was a longer study. It was 72 weeks. It included um, calorie deficit diet, 500 calorie deficit diet um, daily, um, lifestyle intervention, and the primary endpoint was reduction in body weight, and actually saw greater reduction in body weight than in the surpassed trials, not by much actually, which was interesting, which goes to show that with a drug this potent, maybe the lifestyle intervention, although it is very important for other reasons, may not be as important for weight reduction, but basically saw about 15% weight reduction, and very, very importantly, I think, the reduction in A1C, which was a secondary endpoint, but you're you're reaching now levels where you know 50 or so percent of patients are having greater than or equal to 15 percent weight loss. So clearly important, not just for dysglycemia, but for all the complications of obesity. And you're getting in this particular study over 50 percent of the patients achieved a hemoglobin A1C of less than 5.7 percent. You know when. Pharmaceutical companies like Lilly, in this example, they do large studies and they look at all these individual outcomes. So the surpass studies, which you might see, was all in people with type 2 diabetes. The surmount studies is when the company's trying to get other indications. And one of those indications, which is big, is just for obesity, whether you have diabetes or not. You can have type 1, you can have type 2, you can just be an overweight person without diabetes. And just to bring you right into the, the staggering and shocking results is that the average weight loss, average, was 18% of their body weight. So if you weighed 200 pounds when you started, you lost 36 
pounds on average. Some people lost more. Some people lost less than that. But mm-hmm. that is the average. And I'll just say one more thing, Jeremy, I'll let you go, is that the FDA considers a, a, weight, a weight loss drug, if they can get people to lose 5%, mm-hmm. then they are eligible to get the obesity indication. So it's really a blockbuster advance, and everyone was talking about it, the surmount two. And of course, there's surmount one, two, three, four, five, looking at prediabetes, arthritis, fatty liver, all the conditions that are associated with obesity. Yeah. So we have Wegovi already approved for obesity. Soon we should have Manjaro. It might have a different name actually for, for obesity. And then there was all these other compounds at the, at the conference too that are coming down the pipeline, combining these different you know, drugs. And the weight loss is insane. So we really are in this just like golden age renaissance of obesity treatment. And it's just incredible. And everybody knows somebody that's been on one of these drugs and how they're literally life-changing. Life-changing. And you can't, you couldn't walk down the halls of this conference with people just kind of literally buzzing about this because we haven't had good weight loss drugs, period. And now all of a sudden we do. We should also say we've mentioned it several times uh, in some of our videos. And in our newsletter, we have two folks with diabetes and one without who have talked about their experience on Monjaro <laughs> as well as uh, Ozempic. Okay. Yeah. So moving on to the next topic, um, we asked this young upstart doctor named uh, Dr. Jeremy Pettis uh, to talk about something in type 1 diabetes, uh, specifically what's going on kind of pre- preservation, prevention, replacement, all the kind of like the various areas of type 1 diabetes, but specifically because now we have teplizumab or Tzeal that's been approved to delay the onset of type 1, um, which is super, super exciting. So let's hear what... I had to say on this topic. Dr. Pettis, yeah, he was a star. And we have teplizumab, you know, the first approved drug in November to modulate the course of the disease. And it doesn't matter how much you know about it or, you know, what you think about screening for type 1 diabetes, just pausing and thinking that we, for the first time, have a drug that addresses the underlying condition of type 1 diabetes. So a theme in the meeting has been, oh yeah, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. What the heck is a T-cell? You know, these things that we haven't been thinking about for a long time because we've been focusing on glycemic control. So again, so we have now teplizumab, which is approved now to delay the progression of type 1 diabetes from stage 2 to stage 3. Um, and I think just there, there's still all this discussion about what these stages are. But I think the good news is you couldn't walk around the conference and not hear people or see people showing pictures of what is stage one, stage two, stage three. What are these autoantibodies? How do we screen for them? Who is an appropriate candidate for this drug? Um, I think it's been so good to now have this final approval, but it's also shown how woefully unprepared we are for screening people for this, for finding people, for infusing this drug. Um, you know, I'm an endocrinologist. I've never stepped foot in an infusion center. You know, none of us have really done these autoimmune, you know, therapies. So this is all good news, but it's, it's, it's time for us to kind of ramp up. Well, I mean, I was blown away with my response. I think it was really good to listen <laughs> back to what I had to say. So, yeah. 
Um, you know, and it's not bull. There's so much going on in type one, and we've talked a lot about this. So our, our literally our number one podcast that people listen to is called The Science of Type 1 Diabetes. Um, so go back and give that a listen because we talk a lot about what teplizumab or T-Zield is. And now we're starting like to really get aggressive about screening people who are at risk for type 1 to potentially give them this drug. And then, again, what's exciting is that hopefully this drug will soon be approved, knock on wood, for people who are newly diagnosed with type 1. So it's not far off that we could have that every single person, as soon as they're in the hospital or whatever, diagnosed with type 1, hey, here's a drug that can help preserve your insulin production. I mean, it just seemed like science fiction just a couple years ago. And here we are now to have the very first drug approved. Again, another kind of buzz that was going on in the conference for sure. And opens the door for other compounds that, that people are looking at how to preserve the beta cell in type 1. For sure. So now on to our next topic, which is a more of a, I don't know, I would say controversial one a little in a, a little bit of a way. So what this is, is uh, several companies now are developing these once weekly basal insulins. So if you are on a long acting or basal insulin, that's something like Lantus or Tugeo or Truceba, and all of them are once a day. And so now companies are developing shots that last once a week. So pros might be, you know, that it's obviously less injections once a week. But concerns are that you have to take a very, you know, a relatively high dose so it lasts all week. How do you titrate it, et cetera? So we asked some of our experts on the panel, what did they think about it? And particularly, what was their experience being in the clinical trials? Because these drugs aren't on the market yet. And so we asked our good friend, uh, Athena Samikas, guess what? Another doctor that Steve trained um, years ago. And these these aren't schleppy doctors. These are kind of like the cream of the crop. And our good old Steve Edelman is the one that kind of trained them. So you know they know what they're talking about. So let's hear what uh, your, your pal Athena had to say on this. We did uh, both the type 1 and the type 2 studies with Icodec. We're in the middle of doing them now with the Lilly product, Biff. And uh, our patients love them. I have to say that that was a uniform response. Maybe not so much in the type 1. That, that, it got a little bit more complicated with the type 1 uh, population. But overall, having uh, just one injection a week, uh, was they were thrilled. What I would say was actually surprising. I mean, as we've advanced from, you know, MPH to glargine, glargine to U300, so on and so forth, it's always been sort of similar A1C. But if you look across the, the five ICODEC studies, there's actually, you know, one, three, five significantly greater A1C reduction with ICODEC compared to either insulin, glargine, or degladec. So you have to take, obviously, the, the glucose lowering as you interpret the, the hypoglycemia and a lot of CGM done in those studies, which I think has been nice. Well, Jeremy, you, you, you gave a great intro on these once weekly insulins. They have been studied in clinical trials and there's no question they work well. They have sometimes less hypoglycemia. Their A1C drops are the same uh, and it's just easier to take. And, uh, the big point, the big issue is when they get released, because of the dosage will be different and it is higher, uh, and the titration schedule may be a little more complicated, and it takes four to five, six weeks to reach equilibration. That I think introducing it to the clinical doctors of the world m might take a tremendous educational 
uh, effort, and that's what TCOID is for. So I do think it has potential, um, and I think you know uh, that in type 1 diabetes, it probably has the biggest challenge, because us type 1s need to be titrated a little tighter mm -hmm. than type 2s, and we'll just have to see how that yeah, goes. That's what I was going to say, is that even though there's a lot of debate about this, everyone kind of agrees that this is for type twos, that for type ones, it's it's not going to really kind of take off, except maybe for those type ones that are missing basal doses, they're in DKA frequently, and if you could get them just to take a weekly injection, that might be helpful. Yeah, just one last comment is that a lot of people were talking about we already have once weekly GLP ones, uh, which have overturned the type two market, but if you, they might combine the GLP one with a, with a basal weekly basal insulin, and that combination can work very well. We've seen that with Soliqua and Zoltify, the two compounds by Sanofi and Novo. Yes. Yeah, so moving on, and because this is, you know, a diabetes conference, diabetes touches a little bit of everything, including the heart, cholesterol, you know, the kidneys, which we're going to talk about next. Um, so one kind of evolving thing is what targets do we set for people with diabetes when it comes to their cholesterol and specifically the LDL or we call it kind of the lousy cholesterol the one that is the most concerning when it comes to heart disease and this has been an evolving topic from when I was in training we had very specific goals you want to keep the LDL less than 100 and then for a couple of years there we just abandoned these goals altogether and just said you know if you're at diabetes you're at risk and you know don't worry about the the actual numbers and now we're back to actually setting these targets again. So let's listen to Athena again, talk about what these goals now are specifically. If you are listening and you have diabetes, what should your LDL be? And one of the things that I went to today that I thought was good, it started out uh, the ADA standards of care for LDL. And this year they changed. And uh, the group that went over what the updated standards were uh, emphasized that uh, LDL for primary uh, prevention of heart disease the, the targets are now less than 70 if you're between the ages of 40 and 75. And for me, where I worked in a lipid clinic uh, for many years, I'm so glad to finally see that they are back to the targets. For secondary prevention, they've pushed those numbers down to 55 milligrams per deciliter, um, really going after trying to prevent heart disease in those that have diabetes. So I thought that was important. So in a nutshell, uh, previous to these new guidelines, if you had diabetes, your doctor and you should be shooting for an LDL cholesterol less than 100 using any way things you can. Lots of new medications in this class as well. And if you already had heart disease or had a ton of risk factors for heart disease, you were supposed to get below 70. So now, quite simply, they say everybody with diabetes without risk factors should be less than 70. And if you have risk factors or you've had a heart attack or, or congestive heart failure, you need to be less than 55. And I just want to let people know that, you know, everyone hates taking medications. They hate statins. We still, I still can't figure that out. Uh, but these goals were really taken and developed from lots of large, very good data. And Heart disease, the number one cause of death in people with diabetes, type 1 or type 2. So this is something for everyone to pay attention to. Yeah, and I would say if you're listening and you're not on a cholesterol medication, there is essentially no way your LDL is less than 70. So the only way to get there is really with these medications. 
So a better way of saying that is if you have diabetes, you need to be on something for your cholesterol because that is the number one way to reduce your risk of, of heart disease. You know, that's well said. I, I've never heard anybody say that. You know, there's no way you're going to get to that level on nothing. Yeah, I don't care if you eat grass all day. It's just not possible. Well, I usually smoke it. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, let's go. Um, so the next topic is actually moving on to the kidneys. Um, so obviously another organ that's uh, highly impacted by diabetes. And there's been a little bit of an evolving movement here, too, on terms of how do we measure kidney disease? How do we monitor it? And we had our good friend, uh, Eugene Wright, uh, talk about this, who actually Steve didn't train. So just take what he says with a grain of salt, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, one of the things that I thought was very impactful at the conference is that you know, there's a lot of movement both in the U.S. And, and abroad to start to do the UACR and the EGFR routinely according to the guidelines. And people are getting the word about that. It's in the NCQA, HEDIS criteria. I understand it's being considered for MIPS, so there'll be some additional or incremental reimbursement for doing that. Okay, here's here's the thing in a nutshell. I think this thing came about these new guidelines and attention because of the SGLT2 inhibitors, Farziga and Jardians, showing that they not only can reduce heart disease, congestive heart failure, but reduce the progression of diabetic kidney disease. Some of you listening may have seen those commercials on television from Farziga. You know, yeah, if you have kidney disease. So the, the guidelines are this. They're kind of a wake-up call to caregivers to order the right tests at least one or two times a year. What are those tests? Everyone gets on a chem panel, the, the, what we call the creatinine and the BUN, and then the EGFR, estimated glomerular filtration rate. And that's these are three indices of kidney function. But the one step beyond that is the microalbumin to creatinine ratio. And the thing is, that test... T talks about the structural damage of the kidney. We know what's normal. We know what's abnormal. And it doesn't take more than writing the order for it because a chem panel is just blood test, an inexpensive panel, and the other one you turn in your urine. So with the EGFR and urine albumin to creatinine ratio, any provider can get a really good idea on where an individual is. And just to mention, it's a super common problem in people with diabetes. We call it chronic kidney disease or diabetic kidney disease. And there are no symptoms in the early stages. Yeah. So now we can, there are certain medications, but the SGLT2s, I'm on one myself because I have chronic kidney disease from 50 plus years of diabetes and my indices have improved greatly. And mine, my response is not an unusually good one. It's a typical one. Yeah, so I would say if you're listening, you're saying, gosh, how do I know if my provider is ordering the right you know, stuff? If you're peeing in a cup, you know, once or twice a year, they're they're ordering the right thing. Because when you are peeing in a cup, that they're probably checking your protein. When they're checking the, the blood, that's, you know, kind of your other things of, of kidney function. But if you're saying, hey, I've never actually, like, done a urinalysis or anything at all, that might be time to ask your provider of, hey, why haven't we actually done this test? Yeah, I would say that, you know, they, they may not order the urine album to creatinine ratio if they collect your urine. They could just, they may not, they could easily get it from that. Yeah. So I think it's the us living with diabetes, it's our responsibility to have a good communication yeah. with our healthcare provider and make sure you get that test. It's so important. Right. 
And I think the good news is here that, like you said, the reason we're talking about this is we have so many drugs now that that can help the kidney, help the heart. So all these, you know, tests and these things that we're talking about is because we we have things that it can intervene in an actually very beautiful way. That's exactly right. So next, um, we have the topic of kind of non-insulin therapies in, in type 1 diabetes. And this is something that I am particularly passionate about that I've said many times on this podcast and anybody that will listen to me at Starbucks, um, <laughs> that I am tired of all the type 2s getting, you know, all these cool medications, GLP-1s, SGLT-2s, you know, weight loss. Everything that we just talked about has been specific to type 2s. Um, but these medications can help type 1s. So where are we in developing other therapies for type 1s. We will always need insulin. God bless insulin for controlling our blood sugars. But what about other things for weight and heart and things like that? So let's listen to what I said in an impassioned <laughs> way to a just absolutely glued um, audience um, this just last June here in San Diego, California. You know, when it comes to adjunctive therapy for type 1s, I think the main problem is that we need to recognize that this is a need in type 1s. You know, the and type 2s has always been combination therapy and the ominous octet and we dr- addressed these multiple metabolic pathways that Ralph DeFranzo taught us. He had his glass of wine and he, he left though. Um, <laughs> but um, the same thing exists in type 1 diabetes. Yes, there's insulin deficiency, but the, you know, the alpha cell is messed up. There's insulin resistance. There's GLP-1 issues. And ultimately, we need to kind of adopt a similar approach that we have a type 2 and type 1, and we haven't done that yet. And there's, like I said earlier, universal insulin resistance. There's weight gain. There's cardiovascular disease. There's hypoglycemia. These things are actually made worse by insulin. So in the event that you develop the perfect AID system, which I hope we do, and I think glucose control is a solvable problem, you're still left with all these other issues that we're dealing with in in type 2. We're talking about heart disease and kidney disease. But where is it in type 1? You know, what about the type 1 that has chronic kidney disease and we can't use SGLT2s in them? What about the type 1 that's overweight and obese, which is, by the way, most of us, we can't use GLP-1s in them? It's just, it's, it's wrong. You know, Jeremy has been crying for a long time about <laughs> not having access to type 2 meds. But I just want to say that just because a medication doesn't have the quote-unquote indication from the FDA, it doesn't mean that us type 1s can't use it if it's safe and effective and your caregiver agrees. So Jeremy and I prescribe these drugs all the time for people with type 1, and sometimes we get a little pushback from the insurance company, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we get an absolute... Hell no, I'm not paying for it. But I do think it's important that eventually, one of these days, uh, they, they will be approved. But for anybody that thinks it may help them, they should have a discussion with their healthcare provider. No, absolutely. And I just, thanks, Steve, because I think it is so important and it is happening. It's just happening like a little bit slow. Um, but I think, you know, we're kind of going to wrap up there. And I think our hope is that everybody gets a little bit of a window and kind of what these conferences are like, the way that, you know, us providers share information, the way that we get information, that we do kind of have these rock concerts, if you will, of diabetes information. And the ADA is definitely one of them. And it's fun to be a part of. Um, it's, you know, kind of can impassion or remind us of why we do what we do. It's fun to be around these other people that are so passionate about it in these different areas. You know, I'm obviously a type one 
one guy learning for myself what these LDL goals are and kidney disease, things that I'm not doing kind of every single day so I can provide the best care to patients and then disseminate this information. So we're hoping that you're listening and thinking um, that you got, again, a little bit of window into it, that we could help provide some clarity into what these conversations were about. And you feel like you just attended one of these conferences. Yeah, and we'll do it again next year. And it's also a great uh, opportunity to see colleagues that you know you don't see face to face because they're from all over the world actually Mm -hmm. and for the first time ever tcoid put on our first after after party and we all got totally wasted that night (laughs) well we provided we performed thank you uh for the first time two of our songs live actually um eric and i who's sitting right to our rights and lefts perspective and then the after 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 party (laughs) in my room till three in the morning hey i'm getting too old for that no but like it's actually worthwhile mentioning because it's like you know, COVID is still like it's still lingering effects, and this was the first time that we felt like we got the academic community back together. That's true. Reengaging and in like a scientific way, and yes, that spills over into after parties and after after parties. But it's just a way of like the world coming back together. And in this sense, it was all around diabetes, diabetes research, and caring for people with diabetes. Amen. Yeah. So again, we just want to say thank you for listening, Steve. As always, it's been fun, and we will see you all at the one conference if you are listening to this in time, and if you're not, we had a blast, I think. Um, But take care.